Welcome to the Battleground Wisconsin. My name is Matt Brusky and I'm the Deputy Director here at Citizen Action and welcome to another week from Wisconsin. We have our panel, which is, includes a new panelist this week, Rebecca Lynch. Rebecca is with the Wisconsin Working Families. Welcome, Rebecca. Hi, happy to be here. We'll get a little more about Rebecca as we go forward. Uh, but as always, Robert Craig is with us from Citizen Action. Robert, welcome. Uh, good day, everyone. Rebecca, we're really thrilled to have you as our new panelists. We, we all miss Jorna Taylor, but we're thrilled to have you. We'll talk more about you and your experience as we go, but uh, we're going to dive right in this week. We're going to throw you right into the fire because we have a, a guest for our first segment. Uh, as folks know, this has been a historic week at the Supreme Court around the uh, redistricting case, the gerrymandering. And uh, our first guest, Sachin Chetta, who is the director of the uh, Fair Elections Project, was there, was actually in the courtroom and had an opportunity to witness. And so we're really thrilled to have him to hear what his take was. Sachin, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me here. And Great to hear from all of you this morning. So, historic day of testimony. Tell us your overall thoughts about the opportunity to being there and what this means. Yeah, historic day of argument, I'd say, Matt. Just, uh, you know, there wasn't uh, any witness testimony, but great argument between the the lawyers and, uh, and the justices themselves. You know, the, the biggest takeaway for me is I was part of a small group of people, just five of us, who started meeting in Milwaukee four and a half years ago, uh, State Representative Fred Kessler had convened a little group to say, what do we do? And over the course of many months, you know, no one had asked us to be there or instructed us or you know, delegated this task to us. We took it upon ourselves and we said, as we went along, hey, if we file a case here, we're gonna have to take it to the Supreme Court. And lots of folks said, yeah, right. You know, like, I mean, you guys are thinking a little bigger than you should. And it's kind of amazing to say, okay, just from, you know, a handful of folks meeting at a tea room in Milwaukee, we took a case all the way to the Supreme Court and to be in the room watching the folks that we've all heard of and watched on television, et cetera, uh, actually have an argument and, and, and to be able to keep up with it because I, I knew what they were talking about, right? We've been immersing ourselves in these issues and fighting on these issues for so long. It was really an amazing uh, experience and a real validation that citizens coming together can lead to something. So, Sachin, did you take anything away from the oral argument or were most of the cards kind of held close to the vest, so we really don't know? Yeah, I surprised. I definitely came out of the argument hopeful. Our legal team is very hopeful. We're saying we're cautiously optimistic. We didn't hear anything at the argument that surprised us uh, necessarily in a good way, but we also didn't necessarily hear anything that surprised us in a bad way. This case has always been about whether or not we can get Justice Kennedy to agree that we've uh, responded to his invitation in a case from the mid-2000s, the Vieth case, to set a manageable standard so we can actually start knocking down the worst cases of partisan gerrymandering as unconstitutional. That's what our trial court did. We still have confidence that the, we can get five or more votes on the Supreme Court to say that that's what we uh, should do. And so it, right now we feel we feel good. And more than that, Robert, I think we feel great that we've 
put the issue on the table. We've put the issue, pardon the pun, on the map. And people are talking about gerrymandering. They're talking about map rigging. They're talking about the effect on democracy. Uh, lots of folks from uh, all different political perspectives, progressives and conservatives, Democrats, Republicans, independents, are really stepping up and saying this is a critical issue that we have to address not only in the legal system, but politically, and that's really important. Sachin, so you mentioned Justice Kennedy, and I know all eyes are on him. Uh, Yesterday, did he say anything? Did he ask any questions that were particularly of note? What was his reaction to the arguments? The the way he really participated is he asked a lot of really tough questions, and he followed up those questions when they weren't answered. When he was uh, questioning the state's attorney, uh, the Solicitor General of Wisconsin, who works for Brad Schimmel, Uh, He was really pushing uh, both him and uh, the person representing the legislature, uh, Attorney Murphy, on the issue of whether or not people's First Amendment rights of association had been violated and really examined that kind of in depth. When our lawyer got up there on behalf of the plaintiffs, he didn't ask a single question. Um, And so, look, people say don't read the tea leaves, don't try to interpret oral arguments. We definitely can feel good about it. uh, But at the end of the day, it's the arguments themselves, the substance that's likely to hold sway. You know, the traditional conservatives on the Supreme Court all kind of did what we expected them to do, which is try to poke holes in in our case. Uh, The traditional folks on the other side, you know, were generally pretty supportive of our arguments and some so uh, very overtly. Uh, And then Kennedy was kind of the guy in the middle, and that's what we thought would happen the day we filed the case two and a half years ago and when we started even before that. Sachin, you know, Chief Justice Roberts has obviously broken with fellow conservatives a number of times, notably on the Affordable Care Act case. And I know there was some thought that maybe he was gettable. To me, you know, much less uh, connected to this than you are, Sachin, Um, it seemed like his questions about how this would make the Supreme Court an arbiter of every single redistricting across the country didn't bode well, but maybe I overreacted to that. What was your thought? Trying again not to read the tea leaves, because our lawyers have told us very clearly not to do that. You know, he he definitely pushed that point. Um, Our lawyer responded to it very directly um, in pointing out that these cases are already getting filed in federal court. Actually, one of the reasons they're getting filed is because there's not a clear standard. And our case actually proposes a measurement, right, that makes it less likely, in our view, that lots and lots of cases would be filed. This is more of a Republican talking point to say that every map will now be subject to scrutiny in, in this under this new standard. And actually, we say, look, if, if, if you don't have single party control um, or you can't get to a measurement of partisan asymmetry, then the map is probably going to be valid. And so we actually will narrow the, the number of cases that are involved. And our, our lawyer made that point. Uh, there was also a lot of discussion. I think he participated in the discussion about standing, uh, which really was a question of should these cases be decided district by district or on a statewide basis. And there's a lot of legal argument about that. Uh, we're hopeful that that issue is kind of uh, – you know, not uh, compelling to Kennedy as a reason to avoid making a decision, which is, I think, where where, where some of the conservative justices were maybe hopefully uh, going to go. So. so, Sachin, what should our listeners expect next? Uh, the court is notorious for not giving any timeline, uh, so it could be as late, my understanding, as June of next year, but it could be earlier than that. Uh, so what's next, and then what should they do? Because it's my opinion that judges are not in some hermetically sealed vacuum and that what's going on in the world actually does influence their decisions and that that's a silly view of 
of what a judge is or how decisions work to think that they're that they're isolated from public opinion. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to necessarily get into the debate. You know, our our view is that we shouldn't we shouldn't lobby the judges directly, obviously. But what we have been doing, and what we will continue to do, and we've been in great partnership uh, with the with Citizen Action of Wisconsin and your local cooperatives all across the state. As you know, I'm a charter member of the Milwaukee Cooperative. Um, is is we're we're trying to educate the public, right? We're trying to get out there and talk to people. People understand that the political system is broken. And they understand, once we talk them through it, how gerrymandering and map rigging makes the system broken. And so folks from all different political perspectives want to change that. We have uh, counties all across the state that are passing resolutions. Most of those counties voted for Trump. Most of those county supervisors saying we should change the redistricting system are conservatives. Uh, 56 counties voted for a resolution at the Wisconsin Counties Association. So we have this local campaign saying, let's change the system. We're trying to get a hearing on the bill to make the redistricting process independent, and we're continuing to pressure the legislature to do that. So there's lots of uh, opportunities to uh, be engaged in the campaign to end or restrict partisan gerrymandering, and people should continue to do that and engage, and that will help create the public swell that we think we need to reinforce a good decision from the Supreme Court. Yes, uh, Sachin, I want to follow up on something you mentioned earlier about how people from all different kinds of the political uh, spectrum have come out and are energized by this. Uh, Just a few years ago, this was not something you had many people organizing around, and and we, we've been amazed and, and we're really encouraged by the level of public support at these events that you've mentioned. Uh, the public has really w- figured this out and figured out how this is a chokehold on our democracy. You can't really have a functioning democracy. It requires having fair election maps. And this is uh, really caught on. And so we're, we, we first want to thank you for your vision years ago uh, to try and see this case to the Supreme Court. I remember when you first brought it up and presented this, and I actually didn't think you were crazy. It made good sense, and I, you know, it's really good that uh, we're in this position. want to underscore and encourage people to get involved. If you want to get involved here at Citizen Action on this issue, please reach out to Anna Dvorak, and we'll have her contact information also on the website uh, or any of our regional organizers. So, uh, Sachin, any uh, parting thoughts for, uh, for our listeners? What you just said should just be reinforced. People need to be engaged in trying to fix our democracy. Our democracy is broken. You know, we had Republicans and Democrats and progressives and conservatives and independents all speaking up uh, at a rally. I was actually, you know, I had the, the weird honor of, uh, I don't know if honor is the right word, but I spoke at a rally and a few people later, Arnold Schwarzenegger spoke uh, uh, on the steps of the Supreme Court after the oral argument. It's a very interesting group of people, but it's folks who are all committed to making the system work. And we might disagree about policy, but we are starting to agree more and more as a country that the system needs to work and represent the people. Uh, and that's what we're fighting for. So uh, stay involved in your citizen action cooperatives uh, and uh, keep getting the word out that we need to we need to fix this. And thanks for having me on. All right. Thank you much, Sachin. With that, we got to get out of here. We'll see you right after the break.
Welcome back to the Battleground Wisconsin. We are Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. We want to thank Sachin Chetta for joining us in the previous segment. And again, folks, stay involved in this uh, fight for fair maps. But we want to take the time now to get to know a little bit better our new uh, panelist, our guest panelist this week, Rebecca Lynch. Rebecca uh, is from the Working Families Party. Rebecca, tell us a little bit more about yourself. You are new to Wisconsin, if I'm correct, at least relatively new. I am. I'm, I'm new to Wisconsin. Uh, I'm from New York originally. Uh, my family is from Eastern Queens. I spent uh, most of my career working in New York. I was an advocate for labor unions. I was a government official in City Hall. Uh, but I moved out to Wisconsin earlier this year to be the political director for the Wisconsin Working Families Party, which I think many of our listeners and co-op members, I'm a Milwaukee co-op member, uh, will know of, but it's an independent political organization, grassroots members, union members, community members, uh, organizations like Citizen Action, Voces de la Frontera, that... Um, you know, works in local elections to elect progressives and advance progressive issues uh, in every level of government. Yeah, and so we work uh, real closely with the Working Families Party here in the Milwaukee area and uh, intend to do a lot more throughout the state, particularly uh, heading into the important 2018 election. We are on the same page about the shared values that we need to elevate in this election, and so we'll be We'll be talking more about that as we go forward, but we're and really thrilled to have you. I had no idea Queens had directions, so is the <laughs> East Queens part closer to Manhattan or further away? Further away. Further yeah. away. So we were in Long Island City last week. That's West Queens. Yes. So. Okay. Yes. Just to... and, and for people who don't know, I'll reveal a little bit more about Rebecca. She actually did some extremely important work that we think long-term could be very useful here in Wisconsin around how you leverage public investments, development, and other things to make sure we have good jobs. Uh, she was involved in making sure that when Sandy Relief uh, happened, that uh, the construction and all the redevelopment actually employed people from our communities, got them into unions, and good-paying jobs. So uh, we're really lucky here to have her in Wisconsin, uh, and we're, we're glad you can be on our podcast and are, are, are filling in as a panelist. And who knows, maybe this will be more permanent. We, we look forward to it. So with that, though, we want to transition back into issues. And Rebecca, you may not know this, but you're probably going to get up to speed uh, over time, but there's a really important uh, piece of legislation in our state, and it's called the Mining Moratorium. And I'm sure you've heard a little bit. It's been in the news. We uh, had Matt Dannenberg on from the Wisconsin League of Conservation Voters about a month ago to talk about this. Uh, and essentially, this moratorium really limits and puts restrictions on the ability of mo new mines to open without proving that they won't pollute. And there is a huge effort underway by the Republicans to lift the moratorium. And Robert, I know uh, you had some ideas and thoughts uh, that you wanted to talk about on this, and in particular, not just about its implications for the environment, but how this moratorium connects to some of the issues we're facing economically here in, in Wisconsin and why we're so vulnerable to legislation like this. Well, this is a particular type of mine, so just to be clear, this is sulfide mines, right? And so, in other words, there is other mining in the state that has done out of a moratorium. And the reason there's a moratorium on this is because there's never been one done safely that it ended up badly contaminating the environment. 
And all the law says is, is that you have to show there's one of these anywhere in the country uh, that didn't end up within 10 years leaking and contaminating the environment. And they can't do that because there isn't. And so that's what we're talking about here. But the problem is that the North Woods is just desperate for economic opportunity and the growing rural-urban divide is what drove in, in part the shift to Trump. And they're just desperate for economic opportunity. People are working two, three jobs and barely able to keep their head above water, right? And kids don't stay there. So there's a real sense that the community's dying because they don't have opportunity there. And so part of the, what's driving this is, is that progressives say have all these words, right, about all the things we would do in rural areas. We have words like rural broadband, da-da-da-da-da, right? But nothing meaningful that tells these folks that there's good, that we're going to actually create jobs up there. And so you have the mine, and you see this in the Upper Peninsula too, uh, and there big fights over the mining there all the time. The mine, which is could be real opportunity to stabilize these places, versus not. And so really, we're, we, I think the environmentalists are doing a fantastic job, and it's always a, it's always a major fight. The more manual turns on the books, so it shows the power of the environmental movement. But we're ceding the economic argument to them, aside from the argument that it could, it could harm tourism, but that's sort of abstract. In other words, it's far from clear that the contamination that would take place, at least to people on the ground, I'm sure environmentalists don't, don't call and tell me I'm wrong scientifically, just from the perspective of people in the North Woods, it's not a clear threat to their economy, it's only an advantage. Yeah, well, and this fits into what we've talked about on Foxconn, right? If there isn't an alternative vision of the economy, if we don't have a vision out there that's saying we're going to spend $3 billion to invest across the state in renewable green jobs that will create jobs throughout the state. It starts to say not just that, but here's how many yep. in Ladysmith. That's right. I mean, literally. Right. right. And also investing, right? We've talked about if you invest in public education, and, and, and obviously this is something that's spread throughout the state. Again, another thing that's under stress in these communities where you have schools closing, merging, all kinds of pressure. These are the kind of things that if you actually have an agenda where you have a vision and you're talking about these things and not just saying, oh, well, they could never pass, right? So we're not even going to talk about them. There's, there's no vision out there that people can grab on. And, and of course, Rebecca, this is something that the Working Families Party, right, is central to trying to, how do we create a politic around this central problem? Absolutely, and I think it's a local problem, and then we see it reflected on the congressional level as well, where you know we were waiting um, for some time in the future, uh, the president and the Republican Congress to talk about infrastructure. It seems like they're so stymied in doing anything that that's a long way off, but this was a conversation we had then too, right? So what is our response? It can't just be no to their plan. What is our plan to put forward to create jobs? And I think to Robert's point, how do we then localize that as much as possible? Um, and what's happened, uh, and talk about mining, talk about Foxconn, talk about Amazon, whatever it is, um, when we don't put forward something, we're in a defensive position to just say no, and nobody wants to hear that. Well, former minority leader Barca was fond of saying there are 50 jobs bills. I don't think we at the table know what those 50 jobs bills were. Maybe they, some of them were absolutely fantastic, let alone the folks in the North Woods. And it has to be immediate, so it can't be oh, this could hypothetically happen, here's a report. It's like, what are we going to do now that could actually revitalize these areas? 
And the problem with, I don't want to make fun, I mean, broadband is really important. If you think about it economically, you think about it as to where people can live and where they can participate in the economy. But to the average working person without a college degree um, up in Rust County, they're, they're, they're not that, they don't need faster internet. That's not their biggest problem. You see what I mean? They work with their hands. There's our organizer, a co-op organizer in Western Wisconsin, Jeff Smith, likes to talk about people who shower before work and people who shower after work. These are the people <laughs> who shower after work. And so we need to make this green energy transition or we're going to destroy a huge portion of the species and it's going to be a wholly unequal die-off in terms of race, in terms of income. Uh, so we need to do this and we need to revitalize these areas and biofuel is one of the ways to do it. But we need to get really concrete and have real movement around it and combine kind of the strength of environmentalism, which is real. And really, there, there's a strong conservation ethic up there. It's not, not, it's not 100% uh, for the mine, but it, 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 it's pitted against each other and the forces are fairly close. And if you throw in kind of the current rural mindset, which is Madison and Milwaukee are lording it over us and don't care about us and just take away resources and, don't, and prevent us from getting anything, then that turns it over and you get a kind of Trump kind of vision or what you get from Tom Tiffany, who's really kind of a Trumpish kind of figure. He's the state senator from the North Woods who keeps bringing this bill up. Well, Rebecca, you mentioned uh, not only Foxconn, but you uh, mentioned uh, Amazon. And there were, I was struck by a couple of news stories this week in light of Foxconn picking Mount, was it Mount Pleasant, yeah. Pleasant Prairie? What? Mount Pleasant. Yes, Mount Pleasant, what as it's, pleasant. <laughs> it's all very pleasant and flat um, places uh, for its site. There was all of these stories about how the Fox Valley wanted to get Amazon. And, and you know, it, it, it again shows if there is no other alternative sort of economic vision, you're sort of left where we're bidding over these large businesses, for-profit entities coming in to create opportunity in our communities. But I was also struck by what Amazon actually said they want. And if it's, it's interesting because what they want requires a robust democratic government, including one of the main things they want is access to transportation. They want a diverse environment. They want strong public transit with a mix of busing, bike lanes, subway, metros, rail. We're not investing in any of this. And these are the kinds of things that actually, if we invested, not only would we create jobs, we'd start creating the infrastructure that would make it so these companies would want to come here and we're not begging them and fleecing ourselves before we get an opportunity. Uh, so we actually might do well to look at some of the things Amazon says they want. Uh, but we would most do well. Says they want. Says they really want, important. right? I think they want the $5 billion bribe. Oh, oh I, I think. it does say that they <laughs> they prefer these things among others. The among others are a bag of cash turned over yearly, right? We get that. But it is important for us to have a vision. Otherwise, we're constantly stuck in this kind of fight. So with that, though, we got to get out of here. We will be back on the other side. Thank you. Welcome back to the Battleground, Wisconsin. We are Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. And before the break, we were talking about our economy and why the mining moratorium fits in and is so powerful in rural places. Uh, and we want to talk about an, another issue that we think is directly connected to our economy, and that is our education system. And uh, there was a lot of news this week about continued efforts to weaken the requirements for teacher quality. In particular, 
if you're an educator, it's well understood that not only do you get a college degree for, as an educator, but that you will regularly go through repeated ongoing training to up your skills since nothing stays the same, not only in just the mechanics of education, but just the world we live in. No longer, the Republicans would like to see that once you just get your college degree, you're good, you're stamped, you're good to go, we'll see you when you retire. Robert, this is insanity. Well, let's take a step back even. No. So how did this come about? Was there consultation with experts in education, consultation with research? We have all sorts of academics and education schools here in UW, for example, the Wisconsin idea. Very deliberative process. Had discussion with, with experts. No, no, it just suddenly appeared in the budget, okay? And so this is also kind of like climate denial. There's no facts involved in this. This is just imposing an agenda. And what is the agenda? We already know that they wanted to scapegoat teachers, blame them for everything, cut their pay, cut their benefits when it's one of the most important professions, um, obviously, and it should be honored much more like it is in other Western countries than it is here. It's also a female-dominated profession, so there's a gender patriarchal part of this. Uh, but they want to de-skill education like everything else and then pay people much lower wages so that wealthy people can keep more of their money, which is the whole driving force of the right. And so voucher schools are not a separate issue. We on the left tend to separate these things too much. They are de-skilling of education because those are largely uncertified teachers, yep. okay? And if, if voucher schools are cheaper at all, it's because they're less qualified, less educated teachers. And a teacher with five years' experience in the public school is still relatively new. In a voucher school, they're a gray-haired veteran because they, they churn over like uh, service sector workers. And so this is just trying to impose that upon the uh, rest of the state. Uh, we have a teacher shortage that's grown up because of Act 10 in part. And this just makes it worse rather than what we're doing what we should do. Can you imagine this, for example? If you all talk about, I, I know Rebecca has things to say about this, being done to a male-dominated profession like doctors. Let's get rid of doctor certification, give lifetime medical licenses. You would never see that, right? And teaching is every bit as important as, as medicine, in my opinion. Absolutely true. I, mean, I think this also ties back to what we spoke to in our last segment about economic development. Um, and, you know, as we talk about, for example, Foxconn, uh, another thing that's been happening in terms of uh, exacerbating the teacher shortage uh, in, in this current budget that was um, just passed is that there is now um, in the budget a takeover of Racine schools uh, if they fail their next report card. And let's keep in mind that, you know, it's designed that they fail, that the system is entirely rigged. Yeah, uh, that the report cards have them starting uh, 100 yards back from the 100-yard line and then say, you didn't make a first down. It Totally. <laughs> it's a rigged game. And then the second thing is that it would allow for the secession of the villages in Racine County to break away from the Racine Unified School District. So, you know, this teacher certification uh, change is designed purportedly to uh, deal with the teacher shortage, but at the same time, the GOP attack on public schools and public teachers continues, and instead of investing in our schools so we can attract companies like Foxconn, they are attacking our public schools, privatizing them with vouchers, and we are losing more and more teachers, and you know, changing the certification is not going to fix that, not at all. Yeah, so this is part of a broader agenda, and when you hear about things such as, uh, and by the way, we hear all too many Democrats using the word saying there's a skills gap, 
What the skills gap means is that there aren't enough people who would work for the wages being offered. So the problem is that there is a market defect, to use right-wing language, and a market defect among employers who think they can pay welders $10 an hour, where if they paid them 15, they would have a flood of welders, right? And so this is the same sort of idea. We have a situation with automation, with the rigged global economy, with most of the jobs being created in Wisconsin, nine of the 10 fast-growing categories being poverty wage service sectors, uh, desperate people, and so, they, and so more of them will become teachers easily if you de-skill the profession. And then we have to pay less for education. So this is all, and then of course, there's the voucher time bomb added in, which will create universal vouchers within 10 years and completely defund the public education system. And the dream of the Koch brothers since the 1960s, since Brown v. Board of Education actually, has been to entirely privatize public education and in fact, ultimately, get out of any responsibility any wealthy people have to pay for anyone else's education. The problem and why we're stuck in this debate is, again, we do not have this agenda that's out there. We need, again, to use the 2018 election to raise these issues, to actually lay out this alternative agenda, get people's minds wrapped around them. It's the only way we can start to get out of this sort of fight of lesser pain uh, and also being played off on, on privatization, which is obviously the voucher movement. Um, I wanna change topics, but it's a similar kind of problem. And Robert, it ha it, 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 you mentioned it earlier, and Rebecca, you mentioned how these things get slipped into budgets, slipped into bills. And so I want to switch to the federal level where we have the federal budget moving. We record on Thursday. The House is actually, we believe, going to vote on the budget today. And there are a number of things that are happening in this budget, and a lot of folks don't know. One is that they're going after Medicare and Medicaid in an incredibly serious way in terms of just a complete gutting of, of that healthcare system. The other thing is, I believe it was either today or yesterday where Senator Johnson slipped in an amendment that, again, would allow to repeal the Affordable Care Act, right? Which is amazing that we would have this whole debate and then in the through a budget, we would just slip all this stuff in that we've just had a almost a year-long debate on where the public has rejected their ideas. But this is it's 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 groundhog day all over again. And again, I want our listeners, you should be calling your state state legislators. I have an 800 number, 888 516 5820 Please call. Let them know you oppose this uh, current budget uh, that we have in front of us. But again, Robert, this is more of the same, another effort to go after basic health care for, 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 for everyone. It's actually quite fundamental in that uh, the modern conservative movement doesn't actually believe in democracy. They believe in putting checks on democracy uh, to control, to make sure that the elite can keep their money and their power. And so it makes perfect sense for them, it's not even hypocritical, to use every maneuver possible to try to defund health care and then to lie about it and say you're providing better health care, the bait and switch that they tried to perpetrate in this election and then during these repeal efforts that so far hasn't worked. And so they're going to keep trying, hoping that the public loses enough attention so they can get away with it because they have no regard for what public opinion attitudes are, okay? So when a, I say when a progressive Democrat summoning a budget undemocratically, they're being a hypocrite. When a conservative doesn't, they're actually doing authentically what they actually believe, though they lie about what they believe, so that makes them hypocritical. 
And so what's interesting is not only do you have Ron Johnson and others trying to continue to repeal the Affordable Care Act, you have CHIP, the Child Health Insurance Program, not being reauthorized, incredibly popular, right? You're talking about kids' health care. The reason the Clintons, after the failure of their health care plan, pivoted to this is because even conservatives don't want to say they're against health care for kids, right? So they're willing to play chicken with that. But so were the Democrats to call their bluff. So Senator Schumer, the, the minority leader in the Senate, is saying that he wants uh, guarantees of no Affordable Care Act repeal and stabilizing it in return for CHIP authorization. So Schumer, no dummy, understands that do they really want to cut CHIP? And I've been asking, quite frankly, since a number of states are going to start running out of money, do any of these red state governors, fire breathers who want to like get everything under control, really want to throw? Do they want to sign the bill that throws 70,000 kids off health care in Nevada, just for example, the governor of Nevada? Just a question. I'm not sure they do. So in a way, I think they've maneuvered themselves into a corner here, but only if we keep firing, because you shouldn't let any crisis go to waste. And so the, the crisis around child health care is another opportunity to expose the right for what it is and to push us towards guaranteed affordable health care for everyone. Yeah, I, I was just going to say, you know, this is actually an exception to what we've demonstrated throughout the podcast today is the rule of us not offering a vision of what we're for. Uh, very excited about single payer and Medicare for all. Uh, Senator Bernie Sanders introduced it. Our Senator Tammy Baldwin is one of the original co-sponsors of it. Uh, and I think that in addition to talking about uh, defending uh, the access to health care, we have to increase it and talk about how to make this a better system. Yeah, you're absolutely right. We talked about uh, the Medicare for All a couple weeks ago. We agree and think it's, it's absolutely critical. Uh, and it is. It is sort of a place where we ought to be going, and it should be contested in the 2018 elections. And uh, kudos to Senator Baldwin for getting out and actually uh, laying down the vision of where we ought to be going with this. Um, but folks, vigilance is absolutely critical. Please make those calls. Uh, the Senate will be dealing with this bill also. It's in committee today, but this is going to be in discussion over the next couple weeks. 888 516-5820. Please contact your members of Congress. But with that, we are going to take a break. Uh, we will be back, and we're going to talk a little bit about uh, the tragedy in Las Vegas and uh, sort of where we go from here. You're listening to the Battleground Wisconsin. We are Citizen Action in Wisconsin. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. We'll be back. So we wanted to take some time to talk a little bit about the tragedy that happened in Las Vegas. Um, we have talked about this subject many times before. Uh, I am afraid we will probably talk about this subject again. Uh, this was particularly unique in just the scope and scale of it and just sort of also the crowd, that it was a largely white country music crowd um, a slightly interesting, a different dynamic in terms of cultural identities uh, and, and how important that is in this fight around this. So, Rebecca, you're new. Uh, I'd be very curious to hear your reaction and not only to what happened, but just sort of where we're at and where do we go from here? How do we make progress on this problem? Yeah, I, you know, I'm... Uh still processing what happened in Las Vegas and, you know, have people I love very much who live there, who I've been talking to all week, 
Um, I think we all, um, after these mass shootings, tried to grapple with what happened and do some soul searching. Uh, and it feels like Groundhog's Day sometimes. Uh, and it's easy to feel like the odds are so enormous when things are so gridlocked in Congress and the NRA is so resourced um, and radical in terms of the agenda they're pushing and the statements that they make. Um, it could be really demoralizing for those of us who fear for our safety and want to see things get better um, and, and think that the way to make sure this doesn't happen again is to have honest conversations about you know, how we can move forward uh, in a rational way in terms of all types of things, gun laws, mental health, um, you know, a whole host of issues that we should be tackling when uh, faced with like such enormous tragedy. Uh, but I do wanna say that while it feels like uh, nothing changes, actually things are changing. And just a week ago, Rhode Island became the 24th state to uh, pass a new law, I think it was called something like the Rhode Island Safe Families Act. Uh, but what it did is it uh, made sure that anyone who was convicted of domestic abuse, whether it's a felony, a misdemeanor, or there's a restraining order against them, not only will be prohibited from buying guns, but they must turn in their guns. And that was new. It, again, it's a 24th state. And what we're seeing across the country is, and this is especially since Sandy Hook, but state after state after state are passing sensible gun laws like this, and Republican governors are signing them. And part of the reason why we're seeing that is that there is, um, over the last several years, including after the last election, a surge in people like us who are um, becoming active volunteers and donors uh, to groups like Citizen Action, but also to uh, Moms Demand Action, Every Town, uh, these groups that are doing you know, God's work and trying to pass um, sensible gun laws their ranks increase tremendously um, as time goes on, and you really see the change on a local level. On the federal level, um, you know, one of the things, I, I saw an amazing quote uh, in an article yesterday that was from someone who was pro-gun, but they were saying, you know, the game of leadership in Congress, which includes Paul Ryan, our neighboring congressman um, over in Southeast Wisconsin, is to not let this come up for a vote. Because if it comes up for a vote, people will have to show what side they're on. Well, obviously, uh, you know, we need to recognize there's a tragedy here. I think Rebecca is, so it, it feels a little, I mean, I think it's been long enough now, but I don't want to jump to the policy, I guess I'm going to, but I'm just saying recognizing that, uh, that we have a tragedy here and it involves obviously a very mentally ill individual who had more capacity to wreak havoc than they would have 100 years ago because they had the ability to kill huge numbers of people in a very short amount of time. I think the response time for the police uh, to getting them was 11 minutes, which is stunningly fast. If you, didn't, if you had a, a weapon of the late 19th century, it wouldn't have, he wouldn't have been able to kill nearly as many people, right, in that sort of situation. One of the problems we have here is, is that there's been a whole sea change in the last 30 years around guns. I mean, it didn't used to be that this was a, an article of conservative identity that you wanted unregulated guns and that any sensible regulations were seen as an attempt to abrogate a constitutional right. So that's really developed over the last 30 to 40 years. Uh, but it's real, and I think it's really kind of a strategic extremism 
in that a group of very self-interested people, gun manufacturers and right-wing ideologues have figured out how to use it for political purposes and it actually has helped the conservative movement get control of government in a lot of places. It's part of what makes a lot of rural voters vote against their economic interests. And so they're going to continue. The problem is in our framing on our side of sensible gun regulations, we're trying to find these little kind of entryways into the issue, like, okay, assault weapons, right? Or people who are very dangerous or involved in domestic use not having weapons. Most of those regulations wouldn't have stopped this tragedy, okay? So we're not even offering what would. In a democracy, we have to get to a point where we can balance individual liberty and, and the right of everyone else to public safety. And we're not there because of this treaty extremism where it's absolute. You either have an absolute uh, uh, access to firearms or you don't, and any regulation is a violation, and is in the taking, and is an attempt to undermine my identity. And so there's no way, if you have that kind of emotional, kind of more uh, identity-based ideological thing out there which is powerful and motivates people to vote, you can't have this, well, what is the proper balance? So democracy doesn't work and it breaks down, right? We got to remember, though, that this is not a complete absolute right to guns. It is very differential based on race. The idea right now is, is that if you, if an African American young man has a gun, they could be summarily executed. Uh, but if you're white, you can have you can you can bring ten suitcases full of guns into a casino undetected and buy them all over the place without any kind of a warning going off. Why does this man need ten suitcases worth of guns, enough ammunition to fight a bad uh, fight a war? Literally, Robert, I want to follow up on what you talked about in terms of this cultural identity because I think it's it's so much of everything versus like these small entryway points. So the debate right now is about bump stocks, right, and whether mm -hmm. we should have bump stocks. And there appears to be progress that even Ron Johnson and Republicans, but again, it doesn't deal with the cultural identity. We are fighting against an a group that not only organized the grassroots base into a political army, they actually thought about cultural identity and made this not really, this isn't often about guns per se or any particular gun issue. And I want to reference a New York Times op-ed uh, that talks about this and what we can learn from the NRA. It's about the cultural identity that they've made this about basic fundamental freedoms and that folks are, it's, it's if you go own some ridiculous weapon, automatic weapon you'll never use, it's not necessarily about that weapon as it is about you're fighting for freedom, you're keeping away a life. It's, it's connected to an identity that is bigger than any one issue, and we don't have the same moral compelling sort of organizing going on on the other side. Um, and it's in, part of in, parcel of commercial culture. You know how your car expresses your identity, your yep. clothes, your shoes. It's your gun now, yeah. right? So it's, it's, it's not... Founding Fathers didn't have this thing that I'm a real man because I got a gun. A gun was just a useful tool like a sure. hammer or anything else. Well, and I was talking with Rebecca before the show. I see this at flat track races where there's identity that's tied up in that sport that's very similar to gun ownership that has political implications that many of the folks there don't no, don't even think about. It just sort of happens. Um, so uh, this has been a, a great discussion, and, and I do think I, it also part of what I want to talk about here is how this connects to our organizing cooperatives 
and what we're trying to build and what I think a lot of the people in our co-ops are struggling for and why they belong is that we're not just about these issues. We are about trying to build community, organization, relationships, and do things that go beyond just an issue and also building people's capacity to 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 participate and feel involved in the sense of community and i think we need more of that so uh, other, to win one other piece because it's a toxic mess mix of strategic extremism right pro-life is not as politically impactful if it was it's still the same kind of issue but there's enough people who are cross-pressured who they'll vote over a lot of catholics who will still vote for the more progressive candidate so we need to get to there but their answer, which is very cynical, is we just need more mental health. Now, there's potentially an opportunity there because these are right-wing Republicans don't want to fund any mental health. The only way you would have a much more robust mental health system is something like Medicare for All, and we should be calling them on that because we need to have much more robust mental health, not only to prevent more of these, they don't prevent all of them, prevent more of these tragedies, but also to prevent people from going to prison, mass incarceration, because and according to state numbers, 35% of men and nearly 80% of women in Wisconsin prisons have a serious mental health issue. A lot of them would not be in jail if we had a robust mental health system. Uh, but with that, we need to bring this show to a close. Oh, Robert, Just one final one thing. One thing, I won't say much about it. Go to our website. We have a big fundraising event in Milwaukee on, on Wednesday night. So people are interested, go to our website. and We'd love to see you there. Yeah, that is our Brewfest fundraiser. I was going to talk about that, but I'm glad you brought it up. So yes, next Wednesday, Brewfest fundraiser. Please, folks, come on out. It's a lot the of fun. the historic Paps Brewery. Paps Brewery in Milwaukee. Uh, and if you can't and you'd like to donate, please just go online and donate. Help support us. Uh, with that, Rebecca, we want to thank you for joining us, and we hope to have you here more often. Maybe we'll make it permanent. And also we want to thank Sachin Shetta, uh, who joined us from the Fair Election Project. And, of course, Brian Wildridge, thank you for making the podcast happen every week. We'll see you next week here at the Battleground Wisconsin.